After the assassination of Brazilian Union leader Wilson Pinheiro in 1980, the next five years were a blur of violent and political conflicts in Acre State. The war for the forest was in full swing, and Chico Mendes was fighting tooth and nail for his family and the rubber tappers, looking for every possible way to slow the onslaught of deforestation and development that was destroying his way of life. Murder became a big business, with its own brutal economy, propped up by land speculators, mineral companies, real estate firms, and ranchers, executed by pistoleros like the Alves family. Everyone had a price. A union leader like Pinheiro cost only a few hundred dollars, while judges and religious leaders could be more than 20,000. Chico Mendez received his first death threat in 1977, and they continued regularly after that. But still, he was gaining steam, he was elected president of the local workers' union, his first official leadership position. And suddenly, Chico represented 30,000 rubber tappers in the Chapari area and was more determined than ever to avenge Pinheiro's death. By 1985, Chico and the tappers had staged 45 empaches, the nonviolent resistance that he created in the 70s with Wilson Pinheiro. This had become Chico's strongest weapon and led to the preservation of 1.2 million hectares of forest drawing the ire of ranchers all over western Brazil. But the empaches were not a silver bullet. Out of the 45 that they conducted, 30 failed. However, Chico did manage to keep them non-violent. For now. Then came the birth of the UDR, the Rural Democratic Union, a criminal syndicate financed by world banks and the Brazilian government to bring more resources to Chico's enemies and clear the way for the development of the Amazon. They put guns in the hands of rural militias and promoted a romantic image of the Brazilian cowboy, like John Wayne on his horse shooting from the hip. They infiltrated the police and news outlets on the local level, turning the Amazon into an oligarchy of rich landowners, controlling the population with propaganda and intimidation. UDR was an entity founded in Goiás to gather farmers, a farmers' union, large landowners aiming to expel the people of the forest. They began to organize and spread throughout Brazil. The central question remained. How long could rubber tappers last against such a powerful, well-armed enemy? O Chico, ele ele tinha uma visão que era necessário ter Chico, he had a vision that it was necessary to have more and more allies. Aliados entre ambientalistas, professores, university professors in Rio de Janeiro in Sao Paulo. E nesses encontros, nesses encontros, and in those meetings he attended he met leaders with the Union of Indigenous Nations. Eventually, even the peaceful empaches became more violent as the tappers were radicalized, sinking to the level of the pistoleros. They started removing workers from the forest by force, threatening them with guns and even burning down their homes. An eye for an eye. Violence was seeping into every corner of Acre, and even Chico was not immune. After learning that he was placed on the UDR's secret hit list and a number of federal watch lists, he caved in and got his own gun, just for protection. 
To make matters worse, another round of northern migration began in 1981, funded by hundreds of millions of dollars that brought 65,000 new settlers to the Amazon every year. Chico and the rubber tappers were simply outnumbered. Not only that, the fires were getting worse in the Amazon. Each year set new records for the number of acres lost, and all of these forces were quickly spiraling out of Chico's control. Welcome to Wildfire, a podcast series about fire and our world's natural spaces. Hosted by myself, Graham Zimmerman, I'm a producer and professional climber, and Jim Aikman, writer and filmmaker. This is episode four in a six-part series exploring the complex history of fire in the Amazon rainforest. In episode three, we spoke about one of the most violent eras in the burning of the Amazon and Chico Mendes' call to action. We also learned about the villainous Alves family, the perpetrators of Chico Mendes' murder, their history of violence, and their final settlement in Chaparri, just down the road from Chico's home. We examined the two sides of the conflict in Brazil, the war between the rubber tappers and the ranchers, learning that nothing was ever as simple as it seemed. By the end of the last episode, Jim and I were both wondering how things could possibly improve for Chico Mendes as the walls were closing in on the rubber tappers. But in this episode, we'll learn about the next chapter in Chico's resistance, his expansion beyond the rubber tappers to a community with even deeper roots in the Amazon rainforest, the indigenous peoples of the forest. We'll learn more about many indigenous communities that have called the Amazon home for thousands of years and why their knowledge and perspective are so important, both to Chico and today. And finally, we will visit an indigenous Amazonian village where the Sirui tribe has found a unique solution of its own. Thank you for joining us on season two of Wildfire. Graham and I boarded a rickety old bus out of Chaparri, headed for the city of Caqual in the neighboring state of Rondonia, where the worst of the deforestation in the 80s had occurred. As I took my seat next to a window, my head was spinning. I couldn't make sense of all these different angles, the ups and downs, good guys and bad guys, everyone just scrambling to survive, and one man at the center of it all, whose own perspective we could never hear. We quickly exited the dense forest, and got a first-hand tour of the most disturbing landscape I had ever seen. As the bus rolled along the choppy asphalt for our 18-hour trip, weaving around car-sized potholes, we passed hundreds of miles of deforested earth. Burned-up tree trunks were frozen in place, black and twisted like ancient statues. Without the forest holding the soil together, the land had turned into marsh, so the dead trees emerged out of muddy water in ghostly poses. It was a graveyard. Of 
Of course, our bus broke down and we had to wait for another one to arrive, but we finally made it to Kokwal. I was struck by the modern, urban environment that would be our portal into the indigenous world. This was a major city with modern hotels and industry. A bumpy three-hour drive into the forest would bring us to the indigenous reserve, but that felt far away. We might as well have been in Detroit. And back in the 1980s, as the violence tightened its grasp on Amazonia, Chico had more and more frequent encounters with the UDR and their henchmen. He was kidnapped and blindfolded, taken away in a van, and badly beaten by pistoleros. But they didn't kill him. It was almost like they wanted him to survive, to break his spirit, to see him crumble. With his back against the wall, Chico realized that he still had one group of forest dwellers that he'd yet to recruit to his cause. But it wouldn't be easy. It's time to take a broader look at the indigenous populations of the Amazon. Who they are, what they have been through, and what they represent. In the city of Quaqual, we rented another pickup truck and worked on the best way to access the 7th of September Indigenous Reserve, the home of the Surui tribe, named for the date in 1969 when they made first contact with the outside world. We had discovered the story of the Surui's work while investigating Chico's negotiations with the indigenous communities, and it was very exciting to be just outside of their territory. We hoped to learn from them about their past and their vision for the future. In preparation for our arrival at the reserve, I had researched the indigenous communities in the Amazon, and I was not surprised to find that they have an important and rich history of their own. This said, there were some components of my research that had caught me off guard. There was certainly more to the story than I had anticipated. When we think about the pre-colonial societies of Central and South America, we generally focus on the great civilizations encountered by the colonial powers as they forced their way into these areas. Classic examples are the Aztecs of what is now Mexico and the Inca of Peru. There is, of course, also the great mystery of the Maya civilization that disappeared from the Yucatan Peninsula, leaving behind an incredible architectural legacy. But Amazonia has traditionally been approached differently. It's been relegated to the idea of what's been coined by archaeologist Charles Mann as the pristine wilderness myth. The central idea contained within this myth is that landscapes like the Amazon were largely untouched prior to Europeans' arrival on the continent. The communities that have inhabited the basin for thousands of years were seen to have been small and to have lived alongside the forest in symbiosis leaving the forest ripe for the colonial taking. And the permission granted by this myth was essentially the same force that Chico Mendes was faced off against as he tried to protect the forest. But this perspective of the pristine wilderness myth is deeply flawed. In fact, the pre-colonial societies of the Amazon were large and had a dramatic impact on their environment as they sustainably managed their forests. The first evidence for this came from the colonial conquistadors themselves, in a story first told by Gaspar de Carvajal. With a group of soldiers, he crossed the Andes and entered one of the tributaries of the Amazon. 
Subsequently, they decided to continue east, blindly following the river, and they were the first Europeans to travel the length of the Amazon. His manuscripts hold many observations like these. The farther we went, the more thickly populated and better did we find the land. Numerous and very large settlements, and very pretty country, and very fruitful land. He described towns that stretched for five leagues, or nearly 18 miles, without there intervening any space from house to house. He also said that, inland from the river, at a distance of one to two leagues, there could be seen very large cities. These scenes described by Carvajal present strong observational evidence for a robust civilization in Amazonia. But his manuscript was virtually ignored by scholars at the time, dismissed as fabrications and propaganda. But evidence today in the form of archaeological and ethnographic studies has caused a reevaluation of these assumptions. To learn more about this, I talked to Dr. Susanna Heck, the author of Fate of the Forest. I'm Susanna Hecht. I'm a professor at the University of California in Los Angeles. So I've been working in Amazonia since the end of the 1970s. I've been, I worked on the dynamics of land use change. She dove straight into what she had learned about indigenous communities through this work. Working with indigenous people and traditional peoples, what you realize is that while they may not have textbooks, you know, signed by them. They have an extraordinary knowledge that uses the forest and domesticated landscapes as the platform for very complex, very sustainable, very resilient kinds of land use management across lots of different things. Thinking back to Carvajal's manuscript, you might ask, why have we not found these robust communities in the Amazon since? And the answer is as simple as it is terrible. The same epidemics that wiped out the Native Americans of the United States devastated the communities of the Amazon. Studies have found that up to 90% of the population was wiped out. So by the time further exploration of the Amazon basin took place, Europeans were only seeing a post-apocalyptic version of these communities, small bands of people left over from the devastation. But what's very clear is from the archaeology and from the historical ecology, what's emerging is that these were very complex, very interesting, very different kinds of societies from the ones we know. What we have in the, in the Amazonian case is a situation of indigenous management that wasn't based on management, on monocultures, but on complexity. This resulted in resilient and sustainable agricultural systems. There are artistic masterpieces from the past. Um, There are, you know, a, a historical ecology that we're just beginning to decipher. And this brings us back to fire which had a key role in these indigenous land management practices. Amazonians have been burning for probably since they occupied it for about 14,000 years. And evidence shows that it was something they did and continue to do regularly, but with a different methodology than the larger modern fires. They're small fires and they create a kind of landscape mosaic that starts to be resistant to fire. 
So the kinds of things that we see now really reflect the lack of indigenous engagement in these landscapes. So in this sense, we have a completely different kind of fire, fire feeling, if you will. Cool fires, you know, friendly fires, mosaics produced from fires. In his book, 1491, Charles Mann builds upon these discoveries, asking us to shift away from the view of pristine wilderness to a perspective of the Amazon as a well-tended garden, a place where fire and ancient nutrient-fixing practices were used to cultivate an ecosystem that provided indigenous communities with everything that they needed, not only to survive, but to thrive. And this was all on my mind as we entered the Surui's 7th of September Indigenous Reserve. I was also thinking about Chico, who in the 1980s was starting negotiations with the indigenous communities around Acre. With the city of Kakwal behind us, Graham and I left the truck and boarded a small canoe for a river crossing. This was the only way in to the center of the Surui village, which had no roads or electricity besides an old gas-powered generator that had recently broken down. I realized that this physical divide between the city and the reserve was not just a simple borderline on a map. It was a socio-political chasm that could only be bridged by a common understanding. And that divide was even greater when Chico Mendez tried to bring the indigenous peoples into the fight for the forest in the 1980s. In fact, the rubber tappers and indigenous peoples all over the Amazon had a long history of bloody conflict. They'd been deadly enemies for more than a century. Dr. Marianne Schmink, our anthropological expert from the University of Florida, helped to paint the picture. Chico was very aware of the um, history of conflict between the indigenous people and the rubber tappers. In fact, he used to say that Acre was the only state in Brazil colonized by Brazilians, not by Europeans. As we heard from Graham, Brazil's indigenous peoples have suffered a long, horrible history of disease, violence, and genocide. What I didn't know was how much of that violence and oppression actually came at the hands of the rubber tappers. The indigenous people were there before the rubber tappers, and when these migrants were moved in and literally placed in strategic spots in the forest to tap rubber, they often came into conflict with pre pre-existing indigenous groups. So there was a history there of violent conflicts between them um, over access to those territories. And so were the, were the rubber tappers the first sort of quasi-Westerners that the indigenous people encountered? Possibly. Um, there have been a lot of explorers and um, various emissaries of the Western world wandering the Amazon for centuries, but they were the first, certainly, to move in and live there. 
And then the rubber barons, to occupy these areas, they were driving the Indians further and further away and killing them. That's Gomercindo Rodriguez, lawyer and close friend of Chico Mendez. And they put the rubber tappers to do this job of killing the Indians. Because otherwise the Indians would kill the rubber tappers. And then the rubber tappers became soldiers of the rubber barons and were used to kill the Indians, to drive out the Indians, to wipe them out. This created a mistrust between them, and that lasted for more than a century. Through this conquest, the Tappers learned how to survive in the forest by tracking and studying the indigenous, learning the ways of the forest from them, so they understood what a wealth of knowledge the indigenous possessed. And despite that long history of conflict, Chico knew that the Rubber Tappers' current reliance on a healthy forest was shared by the indigenous. They had a common enemy. Okay. How did the indigenous people of the Amazon and the Rubber Tappers come to form a unified front? Well, this was part of Chico Mendes's strategy. He was able to take a very uh, conciliatory and um, open approach to the indigenous people and was able to form the alliance of the peoples of the forest, putting those two groups together. Chico made contact with the Aymara people, who also lived in Acre State, via the Union of Indigenous Nations. Like the Tappers, they were also wary of outsiders, but were interested in breaking out of their insular world. Chico said, We understand today that our fight is the same one, that the struggle of the Indian should be the same as that of the rubber tappers. We should be together today to fight and defend our Amazonia. And then he began to talk to Ailton Krenick about the possibility of creating the great alliance of the peoples of the forest because there was a certain fear between Indians and rubber tappers. But if we join, we will be Indians and rubber tappers defending the forest. Together, the rubber tappers and indigenous groups traveled to Brasilia for a joint commission in January 1986. They addressed the Ministry of Agrarian Reform, the Ministry of Agriculture, and the Ministry of Industry and Commerce. And they were stronger together than they'd ever been apart. This was no small accomplishment for Chico. Not only had he brought a whole new cadre of soldiers to the fight, he had brokered peace between two groups that previously hated one another. His skills as a dealmaker were only getting stronger. Then the Tappers and Indigenous came up with one of the biggest victories in the history of preservation in the Amazon, the extractive reserves. Chico and the Tappers had long been criticized for taking an anti-development stance, keeping Brazil in the quote-unquote Stone Age. He realized that he was fighting against development of the forest without offering any kind of solutions, especially something that would be economically viable. He said, we're not against development, but rather developmentism that insisted on classism, dismantling the rubber tappers' communities, genocide of the indigenous people, debt to foreign banks, and environmental degradation. He proposed a pre-modern lifestyle, hunting, fishing, and subsistence farming, with a postmodern twist, 
entrepreneurialism, communitarianism, multi-ethnicity, all with an internationalist framework. Together with Ailton Krennic and the indigenous people, the Tappers hatched the idea for the extractive reserves, where land would be officially set aside by the government for preservation and sustainable extraction. For context, the extractive reserves would operate similarly to the National Forest Service in the United States, land that is officially set aside for preservation but still available for certain uses, including various industrial uses, sustainable extraction of medicines, oils, nuts, and rubber, even trees when done sustainably. These reserves would defend the lifestyles and livelihood of the people that live in the forests while also protecting the trees. Chico and the Tappers were able to demonstrate the economic impact of these reserves, compared to the clear-cut ranches that were wiping the forest out. They demonstrated that over 20 years, a rubber tapper could earn just over $70 per acre, while a rancher only earned 15. Not to mention, cows eventually render the land useless after five or 10 years of trampling. This would be a net gain for the national economy, the people of the forest, and the environment. And Chico began incorporating economics into his message more broadly, making it easier to swallow for businessmen and political leaders in Brazil. It was a win-win situation and a huge victory for everyone but the ranchers. Back in the 7th of September Reserve, we found that Chief Almir was home. He was the chief who had led much of the tribe's work in keeping the forest standing. And he was also the man who was responsible for the Surui becoming known throughout Brazil as the Google Indians. We were there to unpack that story, and he was just the man we were looking for. We knew some of his story from his book, Save the Planet, how his people had initially described seeing an unstoppable snake destroying the forest, and how that snake was in fact heavy machinery cutting and burning down the trees at an alarming rate. Later, he told how they were then lured from the forest with mirrors and trinkets, leading to their first contact with the outside world. And this first contact, in 1969, brought epidemics of measles, chickenpox, and tuberculosis. Subsequently, their population of 5,000 plummeted to less than 300. They were nearly wiped off the map. With this also came intense deforestation of their ancestral lands. And Almir was born in 1974, in the midst of this dark time for his people. Seeing need for change, the leaders encouraged the younger tribe members to seek education and look for solutions to their plight. One of those young members of the tribe was Almir. And it was through this education and the inspiration for men like Chico Mendes that Almir started to guide the course of his people from one of slow demise to being global leaders in the fight for the forest. Yo. I met Chico Mendes when I was a child, in 1988, before he was murdered, so I was 12 years old. And it was the other Surui leaders who participated in various meetings with them to create the alliance of the forest people along with other indigenous leaders in Brazil. I think the struggle has always been motivating, 
The fight we are having adds to and values that fight Chico Mendes made for the Amazon, for the world, and for Brazil. He then shared where that fight has taken them. The idea came out of the need to seek alternatives to these solutions that deforest the Surui territory. We had an idea to look for alternatives. Amazingly, this led him to Google, which he visited in 2007 while in California as part of a UN conference. I had the idea to partner with Google. And the idea of training the young Surui with the use of its technologies, its platforms, social networks, YouTube, and maps. So the idea is that they can prepare us to have technical and technological capacity to show our challenges, our plans for the future of our territory, and how this can contribute to the common good of all. Rebecca Moore, the engineering manager of Google Earth Outreach, recalled, he presented a pretty sophisticated idea of how the Surui people could blend their traditional knowledge with modern technology, tools like Google Earth and the Internet, to literally defend the rainforest. The Google Earth team jumped at the opportunity, and together they started working on solutions to monitor and stop deforestation. It was the start of something very exciting. They mapped the Surui Reserve and set up protocols to monitor the forest health along its edges. This then led to the development of a scheme to sell carbon credits to foundations or companies looking to offset their emissions, therefore creating value from the standing forest. And it worked. We sold to FIFA when they had the World Cup here in Brazil. Natura bought to offset the company's emissions. The success of the project had also shocked people who did not want the indigenous people to have their autonomy. The story of success of indigenous communities being able to protect their land through communication and storytelling brought us hope for the future of the rainforest in Brazil. It felt like a huge relief as we started to see solutions to the massive problems that the forest is facing. And a few days after our chat with Almir, we toured one of the native villages of the 7th of September Reserve with Almir's cousin, Gazoda. It was in a series of small clearings near a river in which thatched-roofed homes still provided the best shelter from the sweltering rainforest. But nearby, a solar panel was set up to power lights, and a satellite dish provided access to the outside world. It was magical to visit an indigenous village deep in the Amazon. At the same time, I was impressed by the fact that while the Surui people have stepped out onto the forefront of the fight for the forest, they have also maintained their traditions, creating a blend between their history and the modern world that will hopefully carry them into an abundant future with their ancestral forest. It gave me hope. In this episode, we turned a corner and started seeing solutions rather than just violence and destruction. 
And as we reflect on the journey of both the Surui and the Tappers, it feels like we can finally see a pathway through which these communities can preserve the forest. But within both of these stories, there remain massive barriers. In recent years, the Surui have faced larger and larger challenges as loggers and miners encroach on their territory. And back in 1986, the historic alliance that Chico had brokered between the Tappers and Native tribes was widely considered the greatest victory of the war. It put them in direct contradiction with the Alves crime family and their pistoleros. And our hero, the leader of this movement, Chico Mendes, had a target on his back and the Alves family was hot on his trail. The podcast Wildfire Season 2 is a production of REI Co-op Studios, Bedrock Filmworks, and Podpeak. The show is written and produced by Jim Aikman and myself, Graham Zimmerman, with additional production support from Chelsea Davis at REI. Editing, sound design, and theme music are by Evan Phillips. 